Coming up on What Women Want to Know. I know a lot of people that have suffered from mental health illnesses in Nigeria and they've just blamed it on the devil. It's just what they've done wrong or the enemies that are trying to attack them spiritually and then they take that person to a church and it's about let's pray out this demon. It's not mutually exclusive, you can do both. I'm your host, Dr. Adana, and this is What Women Want to Know. The show where we navigate the complex, fascinating and sometimes intimidating world of women's health and well-being. Here, we create a safe, judgment-free space where no topics are off-limits. We confront our fears, we embrace our vulnerabilities and we find humour in the unexpected. Welcome to What Women Want to Know. I'd like to announce a trigger warning. As this video is about mental health, we will be discussing topics such as anxiety, depression, self-harm. On the show today, we're addressing a subject that resonates deeply within the heart of women's health and well-being, mental health. Oh God, y'all, I said that word, mental health. Mental health issues. Helping my mental health. Managing your mental health. Mental health. We won't deal with the mental. We'll explore the barriers and stigmas surrounding mental health, especially in women of color, and the impact of societal pressures, cultural taboos, and the often silent struggle many women face. The goal of the conversation today is to enlighten, empower, and encourage open discussions about mental health. With that said, I'm honored to welcome our guest today, Dr. Jessica Katanga, a medical doctor working in psychiatry whose passion for mental health is profound and inspiring. Dr. Katanga is an advocate for mental well-being, dedicating her career to understanding and addressing the unique mental health challenges faced by women, particularly in the context of racial and cultural disparities. Her research has delved into topics like dementia, with an upcoming study on maternal mental health in Uganda as part of the NHS Global Fellowship Program. In her dedicated YouTube series called Taboo, Dr. Katanga harnesses the power of social media to challenge mental health taboos, educate the public, and foster a society where mental health is openly discussed and valued. What women want to know. It's so lovely to have you on the show today, Dr. Jessica Katanga. It's lovely to be here. Amazing. So the topic that we are going to discuss today is one that's very serious. As you know, mental health is a big one. It's a big topic that has been mostly plagued with all of the stigmas and the taboos, so much so that people don't openly talk about it. But I personally felt that during the pandemic... And the way that that whole period just affected so many people's mental health. And also the fact that it's just a new generation, one of openness and people tapping into their vulnerability. People are sharing and being open more and more about the challenges that they're facing with their mental health. I mean, this is a field that you work in. Let's start off with your inspiration. What inspired you to choose psychiatry? 
That's a great question, actually. And it takes me back to when I was in sixth form and I was volunteering with uh, people who had dementia. So then I was thinking, hmm, okay, how does the like brain work and things? And I thought, okay, I'll do psychology. And my mom said, no, everybody does psychology. You could do medicine. <laughs> of course. Of course. The African parents. Oh, it was just Nigerian parents. I think it's the whole continent. <laughs> the, whole, the whole continent diaspora. So then I was like, okay, I'll go into med school. And I was interested in neurology first. But then mm. as I was doing all these different placements, I just kept on seeing mental health come up. Mm. And even though it came up in every profession, in every sector, the doctors and surgeons kind of like to skirt around it. And I was just mm. like, I feel like we're missing a really key bit. And then from there, I just kept on reading around it. And it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And I was just like, yeah, psychiatry is for me. You know, psychiatry was actually one of the specialties that I genuinely thought that I will devote my entire mission to. And similar to you, it was the intrigue of, you know, how does the brain work? And what are people thinking? Can I read this person's <laughs> mind? It started off with that sort of curiosity. And then in med school, I thought, hmm, I really want to take this seriously. My first attempt at going into mental health was then doing a research at Harvard University. I did a research on wow. schizophrenia. Wow. Actually, that summer, so I moved to Boston and I did this. It was a very renowned psychiatrist and I learned so much and I came back with all of this ambition that I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And for me, I really wanted to be a psychiatrist because what I had learned in med school about mental health, I realized that was the complete opposite of how we approach mental health in Nigeria and in Africa. Okay. So for me, the goal was learn everything and go back and change the country. Obviously, you know, the idealism that we, we all have when we're growing up. So I set up this foundation called Mental Health Initiative for Africa, MIFA. And this was in 2011 or 2012. But as I tried to start the conversation, I, I think this was even pre-becoming a proper content creator. As I started the conversation around mental health back home, the conversation wasn't flowing. There was a block because the way that we perceive mental health was just, they're mad people. Oh, this person's crazy. Oh, did you hear that person went crazy? Like all of these things we know now, whether it's psychosis, bipolar, any of the spectrum of mental illness was not approached in a way that I thought would give me confidence to practice in that specialty and then I navigated so I'm really intrigued by people like you that had that passion and you still kind of stuck to it <laughs> yeah I love that so in your experience what are the most common misconceptions about mental health the biggest one that I can think of is that if you ignore it it will go away number two would be that it's you know there's a it's a defect or it's a fault in the person who's experiencing the mental illness. Mm. And three, that probably like in psychiatry, all we do is just throw medications at you. But no, I've seen that it's like a, mm. it's the mental health it's the psychology, it's, it's so, it's counselling, it's so much that goes into it. Yeah, so I think that would be the top three misconceptions. As with most misconceptions, right? There is a fundamental lack of education and awareness. People tend to vilify what they're uncomfortable with, what they don't know. In your opinion, how can that change? Or do you even think it's changing? I personally think it's changing. When I think about 10 years ago and now, what can we do more of? 
how do you think we can even increase that awareness? I think that's spot on in terms of we vilify what we are uncomfortable with. Mm. And sometimes we also vilify things that we can see within ourselves. Because if we address the mental illness mm. there, then we might have to address it within mm. ourselves as well. And I feel like that can sometimes be the generational gap but i'm sure you know we can talk about that later <laughs> yeah i definitely think it's it's taken leaps and bounds with as you mentioned the pandemic earlier it was a time where we was kind of like forced to reflect a lot of people it disrupted our busy busy lifestyles it mm. made us stop and think hmm is everything that i've been doing or that we've been doing in society do we have to still do it the same way mm. and then it was such a high stress and it was everybody in it together that i feel like just couldn't be ignored yeah. In terms of what we can keep on doing moving forward, I think that all the depression, anxiety, maybe we can put bipolar in there sometimes. I feel like that we're getting a handle on, mm. but there are some more meteor ones like psychosis, schizophrenia, personality disorders. I mm. feel like people are still very vilified for that. You know, it's just a journey of how we evolve the conversation around mental illness. Let's talk about those serious diagnoses that you've just mentioned in the context of BAME communities, right? Like black, Asian, minority, eth ethnic. There's studies that come up a lot. And I think one recently that you mentioned that was done at the University of Cambridge that showed that young black females are the most common group to be admitted to A&E for self-harm. But then those are the communities where mental health is not as acknowledged Mm -hmm. or dealt with. What are your thoughts on that? You quote that study from Cambridge that, yes, so in terms of proportionally A&E, people coming in with self-harm, black women are overrepresented. But then when it comes to long-term engagement with mental health uh, facilities, we are underrepresented. So it's mm. saying something of that we only maybe as a society face our issues when it gets to crisis point, when it's breaking point. So in the context of like cultural attitudes towards mental health, I do come from a society that does not acknowledge mental health as much as here in Western society. Because again, the blame is put on the person. There is the shame that the family feels. There's a lot of stigma around mental health conversations that it's not acknowledged so my question really is how can we br break those barriers within our communities i think one is just opening the conversation and when i say education i don't mean it in a condescending way i think it's an openness there's lots of things that come into it and one of the things as you said pride shame where mm. i come from where if a family is going through something then you have to go through it as a unit and you don't talk to people around because oh, you don't want people talking about you or you don't want to bring shame to the family and things. But really, when you do that, then how is somebody supposed to get help for their parent or somebody supposed to get yeah. um, help for their child? It's such a shame that we do have such a strong sense of community, but it's kind of like a surface level community, true vulnerable community where you don't just gather for when it's good times, but also you can, where you really trust that your brother, sister, auntie, uncle, wider family can um, support you in those times. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people maybe think of it as maybe spiritual versus mental health, whereas mm. I believe that with these things, you can, you can combine the two. So it doesn't mean that if you're depressed or if you're going through this, that it's just something you can pray away yes you can of course yeah. always seek spiritual counsel but then also these things have to be addressed through counseling through medication sometimes through you know through therapy exactly like practical steps 
And I think you've just highlighted really the reason for these cultural barriers. Like a lot of it is very spiritual. A lot of it is immediate society. You don't want people saying bad things or knowing the family secret. And in doing that, you're depriving someone of the help that they need. And then, of course, with every thing that can be improved we look inwards and say oh, what is our society doing but then we also have to look at the context in which we live so unfortunately mm. maybe um if we're thinking of let's say like british people statistically maybe we might be in jobs that we can't afford to take the day off you don't have childcare. So if you're a new mother with postnatal depression well who's going to look after the children whilst you be sad kind of thing so sometimes yeah. we don't even have the time everybody we live in a world where we kind of have to be really productive and things yeah. and then if you are black or if you are african that can be amplified what women want to know i think that's a great bridge to something that you had referenced earlier which is saying that although the study would show that black women are the most common group admitted to A&E for different mental health illnesses, statistically, we're the ones least likely to get help from the system. So I'm trying to understand whether systematically, is it because of so many other socioeconomic factors that would then prevent, you know, the BAME community from seeking mental health support? Or is it a racial prejudice that when this help is sought after, we're not taken seriously? Yeah, it's definitely both in terms of the when now we go out to seek help or so for example if we say as i mentioned postnatal depression earlier in terms of every gp when they're doing the baby checks at like six weeks you're meant to go through the screening questions for the baby blues to the mum and they seem statistically that a gp is less likely to go through that with a black mum or with an asian mum compared to a white mum so we're not even being asked the questions at the same rate as mm. our counterparts mm. and then number two yes people's experiences of mental health services if with physical pain our pain is not always believed yeah and um, then mm-hmm. now no wonder how we might be treated with emotional pain so definitely people's experiences if they've been negative they're extremely valid but i would just want anybody to not, not be discouraged at the same time because slowly medicine is learning and wants to be compassionate and knows that we need to have tailored services towards all of our patients what other changes do you think is needed within the healthcare system to support mental health in diverse populations one is staff training you've just mentioned like if you're going through a questionnaire that's there you're not asking certain individuals but you're asking the others obviously there's a lot of training around you know biases why is that are there any other things that come to mind as far as improving the mental health support for minority populations yeah i would say making sure that people have placements in more like diverse areas so i remember Mm. my gp placement it was in a area where it was just Asians and I kid you not it's so ignorant of me or anything like that but I did not know that Asians have the same family problems as we like as in people coming in with addiction psychosis family issues and I was just like because from the outside you you don't know what's going on in other people's societies I think definitely just experience and exposure was a really key one for me it just makes you look at things from a different perspective right and realize that we all have the same problems we do exactly you only need to see it once then you're just like oh yeah of course course we all have the same problems because we're all human you know education is a big one it's a big one for you i know that you you i mean it's a surprise by standard africans we love education we love education (laughs) 
We love education, right? Let's take it back to the education system, you know, and the roles that schools can play in bringing more awareness to the conversation of mental health. What is the best way to approach that conversation? That's a great question. There's a thing called spiral learning where, let's say every year or so, you revisit the same topic, but in more detail, in more detail, in more detail. Mm. And that's how it gets embedded. So I feel Mm. like we need from nursery times, because how do you know there's a problem if you can't even name it? So let's Mm. first tell people, how do we name emotions? You know, show happy faces, sad faces. That's what you might show in nursery. And then now maybe in year four, you might say, oh, when you feel this emotion, you can think about why. So Mm. I think definitely emotional awareness training empathy so for example in um high school or in university how do you spot signs that your friend might be struggling when you go to uni what is normal partying and what is you know a bit more Mm. worrying behavior Mm. i think that would make a huge difference in just making that conversation just you know a normal thing yeah there's definitely a gap in the education for sure because as far as the happy face smiley face and sad face and emotion like my kids come back from nursery with those photos so I'm well aware that they're teaching them. But I feel like as they then progress further, like when they get into high school or university, I feel like there is that break in how important should we drive the conversation of mental health. But I mean, the the research is there, especially with the rise of social media. There's a lot more young people suffering from more mental health illnesses, whether it's depression, anxiety, of not fitting in or, or not belonging, right? That's the spectrum. There are the very big mental health diagnoses and there is the most common ones being anxiety and depression. If there's someone watching this video who, has no idea how to spot depression in themselves or in someone that they love how can you educate us about it what is the definition what are the signs to look for and how can one take care of themselves so in terms of depression it has to be long-standing so that's defined as like more than two or four weeks and it's low mood low energy and you're not interested in things that you normally would do it can then go on to affect your sleep affect your appetite affect your libido hopelessness you can't think of the future tearfulness is also a really big one so i would say that in terms of if it's yourself or your friend the biggest thing is if they're you know becoming a bit of a recluse or they're not participating as much that would be Mm. a really big red flag and you can just ask them you know what's up how have you been feeling and in contrast anxiety how would you then describe anxiety and what to look out for as well so anxiety if we think about generalized anxiety because anxiety is multiple disorders but the ones that people are usually referring to when they're saying anxiety is generalized anxiety disorder and that's just a constant feeling of that something's going to go wrong that something's not quite right overthinking this overthinking Mm -hmm. that and a lot of people because we only ever have one brain so there's no kind of like comparison how do you know that oh i thought everybody just always checks the door three times you're not going to know that no that's actually not normal and you can have a brain that is not full and a mind not full of noise i can tell people what the red flags are but Mm. if we're really wanting to go deeper and understanding i think therapy if available to somebody 
is great because it's just like our brain is such a powerful machine you know we all have like for example like iPhones in our pocket or smartphones and they're capable of so much for example a machine like that just a smartphone has a manual guide then what more for our brains and minds which is a, a powerful machine you know to the infinity compared to a smartphone so having like a therapist somebody that can just guide you through that and instruct you on how to use your mind the best way and kind of get rid of any glitches you might not even be aware of so you're pro therapy I'm very pro therapy and I'll tell you honestly for the longest time I thought therapy was only for people who had a diagnosis who had problems in their lives and who had difficulty navigating life and I think it was a lot of my own biases as well but now I do have a therapist that's something that I say very openly and I will tell you that it wasn't easy for me to say that openly because okay. I even thought that me saying that I'm doing therapy is going to open me up for people judging me that I do have a mental illness that I don't have. The stigma is just all around us when it comes to topics like this. You know, the pandemic really did a number on, on everybody, but I found that Mostly, the most powerful thing to come out of that was vulnerability. That people saying, I'm not okay. I'm seeing a therapist. And then people advocating for therapy, even when you don't believe that there is a problem at that point. The way you describe, you know, our brains as machines, like you, you really do need to offload that at some point on somebody that you trust. So I'm pro-therapy as well. So let's talk about maternal mental health. And I'm bringing this up not only because I'm a mom, but because I know that you are going to Uganda very soon to carry out this research project on maternal mental health what was the inspiration for that yes i'm very excited about that one so there's this thing called like nhs global health fellowships it was literally a friend that dm'd me saying oh they saw this research project and it sounds up my street i just like clicked on the page and then i saw that yeah it was about like psychiatry and women's health and i was just like well that's, this that's is right up my alley <laughs> And yeah, then I applied for it and I got it and I'm taking a, a locum year. So like a year or two out of the training pathway. Yeah. And I read this book called The Pathless Path, where instead mm. of like following a path set out, you, a lot of us kind of like climb this ladder, climb this slippery pole to the top. This is more about kind of just following your interests and allowing mm. the world to present opportunities to you. Mm. So yeah. Um, I love that. So love sometimes that. I'm like, I'm really leaving the country for six months. Like, why did I do that? And then other times I'm like, yeah, just bring it on. So I take it that this is your first research project or clinical experience outside of the UK since starting your training in psychiatry. Yeah. Because I was going to ask, like, how do mental health challenges and solutions differ globally, especially in places like Sub-Saharan Africa compared to Europe? But I, I, I don't know if this is a comparison that you will only be able to make after you're done or do you have any insights already? So I, I come from Tanzania originally and I visit there pretty often. When I'm there, I like to kind of sometimes visit hospitals and just, you know, kind of just talk to people. Or follow traditional people into the jungle and get iodine to like rub on your skin. I watched that video and I thought that was just brilliant that was a lot of fun when i went to zanzibar the spice farm and just seeing how different societies heal and things so when i was asking a nurse that works 
in Tanzania, I was saying that, oh, that I am also wanting to specialise in mental health here in the UK. And she was just like, huh? There's mental health in the UK? And then I was just like, huh? And she was like, I thought all of you guys, they think there is the land of milk and honey. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. They thought everyone was has their has their ish together. Um, did you tell okay. her that? Did you tell her no? I, I told her okay, the truth. I, I you told her the truth? <laughs> you just popped that bubble. So, again, it's just the human experience, like, you know, yeah, anyway, so there, there's definitely a high need. I also do some, like, I just read about stuff, things. So, like, we've now increasing urbanisation, and mm. Tanzania has a very young population. So, with increasing urbanisation, we're seeing now more teens getting addicted to street drugs and things like mm. that. So, Tanzania does realise, of course, yeah, that there's a mental health problem, there's psychiatrists there. But I think yeah. that the need to supply is kind of like, a, you know, yeah. mismatching. And wh- why maternal mental health specifically? I mean, besides the fact that that was the, the opportunity that presented itself with the Global Fellowship, I mean, you then decided to do it. What was the curiosity? Yes, with my interest in mental health and women's health. And then also my research background is in like dementia. And then mm. when I did my placement in F2 for psychiatry, that was in a, a adult female inpatient. Mm. So then I was just like, mm, I actually quite like going like younger and, and younger. So I thought it will show me adult psychiatry So mm. compared to old age. As you see patients, like, have you been confronted with maternal mental health in the course of your practice? Because as I said, I worked in a young, like so an adult female inpatient ward. So some of mm. them have very, very severe, severe depression. So mm. it's not necessarily that, that I've um, worked with people who are postpartum but giving birth or becoming a mother is such a thing that lots of women go through and such a profound effect that has come into some of my patients history as to where they were had bouts of depression in the past etc etc what women want to know have three kids and I think my first ever experience with mental health where I sat back and I told myself you are going through something you need help I only made that retrospectively after the birth of my second child because I was just crying non-stop and the thing is I, I wouldn't just wake up and cry it was just there had to be something but I was just constantly triggered I was unhappy and it was difficult for me to really admit to myself that hey this might be postpartum blues or postpartum depression because I had never experienced anything like that and you know I consider myself very driven and very ambitious and so the fact that even being a mom in itself is the one job that really slows you down and really it makes you just realize that life does not start and end with you like you now have responsibilities you know seeing David my husband continue going to work and it just made me jealous I felt jealous I felt angry but then that jealousy and anger made me also cry a lot and then I just realized that even the jealousy the anger the tears the impatience the frustration everything were signs of of postpartum blues and postpartum depression 
And that's something that I had to admit to myself when I came out of it. So unfortunately, I didn't seek help whilst I was in it. And so that made me struggle for a lot longer. And I'd say the great thing about that was making sure that I was very aware of my mental health after having my third child. And I think that's a big one. I'm really curious. I mean, the results of your research, especially from the context of Sub-Saharan Africa, I really want to, to understand, do the women present by themselves? What would make this woman in Tanzania come to the GP or come to the hospital to say I'm suffering or I have a problem help me that's my personal curiosity anyway so throw that into one of your research questions <laughs> so that you can answer it when you're done thank you so much for sharing your story I mentioned the kind of anger and irritability I don't think a lot of people realize that those can mm. be signs of depression and that's also that the media or what we think of oh it's not always sad sometimes it's you know you find yourself being irritated at things that usually would just fall off your back you're angry yeah. you're just not the person that you feel that you naturally are yeah so i feel like you set some people free with that story and actually i wanted to touch on anxiety because that's also something that i've recently struggled with as well i remember earlier this year i had all the signs constant worrying i I just felt there was doom and gloom lurking in the background. And every time I would feel this way, I would always try to excuse it with, oh, I'm just being protective of, you know, my kids. If I'm worrying too much about work and success and finances, the excuse is, well, I'm doing this to secure the future of my children. But there was this doom and gloom. I just always thought like, something's up, something bad's going to happen. So I'm going to be jinxed. I couldn't sleep. So normally I don't even sleep that much. Yeah, I'm 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 very I'm very hyperactive. I have so much energy. I literally went through this period where I was sleeping maybe two hours a day, very stressed. My appetite was affected as well. I did suffer for a few weeks, and I remember sitting on my bed telling myself, Adana, you need to break down this ego that's making you think that this is normal and go to your GP, you need help. I remember putting on my jacket that day thinking, you know what? Yes, I'm just going to do it. But I know that nothing's wrong. I'm just being protective of my space and my career and everything. And I went there and she pulled out this GAD7 form, this generalized anxiety disorder seven, goes through a list of seven questions. And I mean, I had the highest score. She, she's like, excuse me, I am diagnosing you with generalized anxiety disorder. And that was hard for me to hear because, you know, they say doctors make the worst patients, right? They're, for so many reasons. First of all, you're the last to seek any help because you think you know it all. I mean, I could have tonsillitis, yeah, coming out of my throat. I'm like, <laughs> I'll be fine. I know a few, I'll be fine. You know, with that attitude of, you know, things need to be really, really broken for me to fix it. It was really a difficult diagnosis to get. There's always the conversation of medication, which is something I want to explore with you. I have had friends who have been diagnosed with depression and they have struggled with, with their medication because of the side effects. I mean, it does help. I'm not saying that medication doesn't help but there is the element of melancholy like it makes you very down and you know to lose your personality these are the common like layman feedback that I hear from my friends what is your take on medication so with medication a lot of people can be hesitant towards mm. it and yes there are side effects and I think it's maybe 
but when people hear other people's stories and they're just like mm, I don't want to go through that or you know the stigma attached to medication or no I'll just I'll, I'll figure it out on my own the way that I think of it is like for example if you have a broken or sprained knee and you take paracetamol paracetamol is then to help you to engage in therapy the physiotherapy so mm. i think it's the same way with antidepressants anti-anxiolytics is that you take those so that you then can engage in the real work which might be therapy which might be mm. living life so which might bridge. be as a bridge yeah exactly mm. so i know that in the pandemic i really went through it and i was so and again being a high achiever, being a black woman, being mm. a la la la. I mm. was so tearful and I was trying to revise through tears. Like it was just ridiculousness. So then I then went to my GP and then now I was able to take the antidepressants and yes, there was some, I got some weird dreams and loss of appetite. Mm. Then it was just like, wow, I can now engage in this thing called life and I can actually, mm. you know, I feel like I'm tagged back in. I'm no longer on the bench. Yeah. So I think definitely just try things. Everybody reacts to things differently. There's always something else that one can try. It can be for you. It might not mm. be for you, but don't rule it out before um, one's taken it. I think for me, the key lesson that I've taken away and for people listening is that medication really can serve as that bridge that you need to hop onto the other side in a way. So it, it's not guaranteed that you would take it forever. It's just you do need it now, engage in it now. Like we keep saying, the stigma around mental health is not just the diagnosis, it's not just the therapy, it's also the medication, right? There is just a lot of stigma that, oh, someone's taking antidepressants. Yeah, and I think that stigma can really prevent a lot of people from engaging in what they really need to help them. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. What is your hope for the future of mental health? Where do we go from here? My hope for the future of mental health is that we decolonize it entirely. We understand people's different cultural contexts. Access to psychiatry is fair globally. Yeah, that we just remove the stigma around it. So I just hope that, that the services that are there are available and robust to treat every patient and mm. that every patient feels empowered to access those services when they do need it okay that's amazing and what about in the context of africa i hope that the stigma around mental health can be reduced i hope that we can name things by their proper names so we see somebody on the roadside it's not just that mad person or that crazy yeah. person it's either addiction or it's psychosis so i hope that we can start naming things as they mm -hmm. are i hope that we can start talking about it plainly within our families within our wider communities i hope that also we can see it as a complement to spirituality rather than as the enemy to spirituality girl that hit me deep i think maybe because i'm african as well because i know a lot of people that have suffered from mental health illnesses in nigeria and they've just blamed it on the devil it's just what they've done wrong or the enemies that are trying to attack them spiritually and then they take that person to a church and it's about let's pray out this demon it's not mutually exclusive you can do both again that does not take away the religious aspect of really you know cleansing oneself but but if we don't acknowledge that this could be a mental health illness, then people just don't get the treatment that they need. It does us a disservice for sure. Definitely. And especially when, for example, things like addiction, if we say that, you know, drunkenness is a sin, then how can somebody then come up openly and start asking for help for addiction? Because you've yeah. already villainized them. Oh my God, you, that just hit me. That's another one that... 
No, that's another one that actually just hit me. Especially, like, drinking alcohol, right, is considered a sin. Someone then is intoxicated all the time. He or she is considered useless or just a waste of space or, or he's gone mad or all of the things, except there is addiction. Like, people also get addicted to alcohol, not just drugs you know you're gonna be the bridge between me and what's happening on the ground in africa so after your research i'm coming to you with all tell me all the findings i'll update you on the tea <laughs> finally we're coming to the end of this conversation what advice would you give to the listeners who may be struggling with mental health issues or who know someone who is my advice would be to know that there's nothing wrong with you that mental illness is not a personal failing and you can live a life that is much more lighter and carefree and you're deserving of that type of life so that would be my advice and also you go by this mantra self-care is healthcare there was this yes self-care is healthcare yeah self-care is healthcare what are your self-care tips what do you do for self-care actually not even the tips because it's very easy to dish out tips like do this 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 right let's lay out what do you do as someone who has a busy career you also do research projects you're busy what do you do for self-care what do you do to preserve your mental health and well-being so i make sure that in terms of my day job i work four days a week rather than five i have routine and plan and prep so so i'm not stressed out in the week i try to make sure i have like nice cooked meals and things wow that's one sure way to eat healthy because it's usually that's that's the trick here but you come back from a full day of work or you're tired and you it's easy to grab the closest thing to which unfortunately might not be healthy so that's okay that's a good one journal um, mm. i have an app which like checks in on my emotions and things really girl you need to share that app it's called <laughs> how we feel it's amazing it's, it's really really cool you might not know how you're feeling so it helps you to find those words in the first place so that's very cool and i've been to therapy as well so that really helped my emotional well-being and i also read a lot of like different like self-help books and things and i do manifestations and mantras and things like i have all these um quite a hippie around in my house <laughs> I love that. I feel like I'm a hippie as well. I'm a hippie that just like has to look proper sometimes, but like deep down, I'm like, I'm hippie to the core. I have manifestations, like six steps to success, like affirmations hanging around everywhere. I love it. Thank you for sharing all of your self-care and well-being tips. I think the one that I'm most intrigued about is the app, which I've never heard of. Not that anybody needs any new apps, but I mean, this is a good one to download. So I'll check that out. But it's been a pleasure chatting to you this time. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I wish you all the best on your journey. Thank and you. especially the exciting project that's coming up in Uganda. Thank you so much. All right. I'll speak to you soon then. All right then. Bye. bye. What women want to know.
A big thank you again to Dr. Jessica Katanga for taking the time to come on the show today and share her insights into mental health as an illness. Mental health is a very important topic, but unfortunately, it's surrounded by a lot of taboos and a lot of stigma and people don't seek help early enough. If you suspect that you or anyone you love is experiencing any of the symptoms of a mental health illness, it's advisable that you speak to your healthcare professional. There is no reason to suffer alone. Your mental health is important and it's okay to talk about it. You can find all of Dr. Katanga's information down below in the description bar if you're watching on YouTube and you can follow her on every social media platform where she shares insights and educational content around mental health. A big thank you to you for tuning into the show today. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and turn on your notifications so that you know when a new episode goes live, which is every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. If you're listening on Spotify or on Apple Podcast, make sure to leave us a review and to follow along because your feedback helps me to improve, makes me understand what sort of conversations you want me to explore on the show, but also it helps more women find us, women who need to be part of these conversations. And don't keep us a secret. Share what women want to know with your friends and your family, but not just the women in your lives, also the men as well. Remember that you can find us on every social media platform, so make sure to follow along. That's our show for today. Remember, your health matters and it's okay to talk about it. Until next time, I'm Dr. Odana and this is What Women Want to Know.